let us know how we can help you guys if you have any of those needs. Um, Hope Happenings, things going on here at church. Uh, we have the Hope Church Prayer uh, that starts at 945 every morning. Uh, we will be doing a conversational style prayer as... But I'm bumped. Um, nice. Uh, it's a conversational style prayer, so we uh, discuss through the Psalms. We'd love for you guys to join us if you'd like to, to join with us. Again, that's at 945 every Sunday morning. Um, we also have the uh, Women of Hope Building Encouraging Relationships event. Uh, that is going on on Monday evenings at 6.30 p.m. Come on in for Bible study, time of encouragement, prayer, discussion, uh, strengthening those relationships among you women. This is a, a great opportunity for you guys to connect and uh, just build upon each other and build strength on each other. Um, and then we have the Hope Church uh, re uh, reboot events going on. Uh, we have, uh, starting August 29th, we have the Tuesday night at 6 p.m., or 1800 for you military people. I don't speak that kind of language, but it's right there for you. Um, and that is for, uh, the, for everybody, right? For if you have any kind of trauma in your life or you've experienced some, some setbacks, some, some things that have kind of derailed you, this is a great opportunity to reconnect and kind of refocus and, and get back on path there, right? And then for our, our military, our service members, uh, we have Thursday nights starting August 31st at 6 p.m. for essentially the same thing, but it's more of a focus on the military. So if you're prior military or current military and you have some things going on in your life that you need to talk about, this is a great opportunity for you to connect. Um, I think that's pretty much everything. So with that, without further ado, I turn it over to Pastor Tom. Am I on? Can you hear me now? Is it on? I did my part. All right. Good morning. I was uh, just texting someone the live stream leak link, so <laughs> forgive me. Um, all right. Put this back in airplane mode. Welcome. All right. Where were we? Um, good morning, uh, Mikey Pooh. Do we have a date for Lockhart? Is that confirmed yet? Still working on it. Okay, all right. Um, so we are looking at the announcement. Is this? We're, we've been in, we've been asked by uh, Fritz Williams at First Baptist Lockhart um, if we could come and help resurface the outside of their fellowship hall and re then prime it and paint it and get it fixed up and looking a little nicer. And of course, we said yes, we would love to do that because, well, it's in Lockhart. When, when else do you get to serve Jesus and eat the world's best barbecue? I mean, unless you're at Mike's house. <laughs> um, so we're working on that, the coordination of that and the nailing down of a date. Um, but we're I think our initial is the, the 23rd of September is the first date we're shooting for. Just, if you've if you got your calendar out, put it down. Uh, we're going to be aiming for that date. If that needs to change for some reason, we will let you know with plenty of notice. But that's in the works. Um, and uh, so if, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, First Baptist Lockhart is a historically black congregation, uh, except when we show up. Yeah. Um, and uh, they are... Um, pastored by a friend of mine and uh, it's just been a kind of a cool relationship he's preached here a couple times I've preached there a couple times and uh, so that's kind of what that is and they've asked for some help and we've we've said of course we will help that'd be great um, so we're lining it up getting it lined out anyway and we'll let you know more when we have a date firmly finalized yeah Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fairly elderly congregation. I'm just repeating for the sake of those who are on Zoom. Yeah. 
So we're working on a, a list of things that you can bring with you, mainly ladders and long-handled long rollers, et cetera. Uh, but really, we just need a few volunteers to be there, and then we'll work together, and then we'll eat together that evening, which will be the best part. But uh, all right. And it should be a lot of fun at the same time. But uh, all right. So that's upcoming. Um, anything else we need to touch base on that I'm unaware of? I think we're good. We have two reboots coming up. I think Jason already mentioned both of those. Uh, please sign up if you are interested. We need the sign-ups to know uh, that we have enough critical mass to make the Bible study. All right. What else? Well, let's just have the important people come down to the front at this time. If you are in fifth grade or younger, we invite you down for our children's chat this morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Why the glove, Alex? Any particular reason? No? I like it. It's a fingerless glove. Are you okay? All right. You're not injured or anything? You are? I'm sorry. Well, I hope it gets better. All right, showing off his battle wounds. All right. Well, I want to I want to read you a verse. And first, let me ask any of you who've been here the past couple of weeks, do you remember what we were talking about? Let's see if we can do this. God is love. Very good. Do I have one of my gold stars in here? I don't think I do. I'm out. All right. Good answer. God is love, right? And this is from the same book of the Bible that's already said twice that God is love. And I want to read you a verse. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So God is love. What does he want you to know? That he loves you. And what does he want you to do? Love other people. Love God. Love others. Good morning, Fabon. Good to see you. What? Even animals, right? God wants you to love. So God is love. God is love. God is love. God is thank you. All right. And he wants you to love. See how simple this is? Yes. It's so easy, even I can understand it. That's incredibly easy. Simple. Yep. Okay. So do you get it? God is. God is. God is. And God wants you to love. Good. I want you to have that thought ringing in your ear. Every day of the week, I want you to think God is love. And when you're about to get mad at somebody, I want you to think, wait, God is love. That's in your brain. It needs to get into your heart, too. And then it needs to come out through your actions. Yeah, your brain, your heart, your body, your soul, all of it, right? That's what God is up to. He is love, and he wants us to grow more and more in our capacity to show love. You get it. Let me pray for you guys before you go to Hope for Kids. Dear God, thank you that you are love, that you have shown us your love through your son, Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice that he made on the cross for our forgiveness, that you have called us in love to be those who show others love. We thank you that this is who you are and this is what you want us to be. And so we pray your blessing on these children as they study more of your word and hope for kids this morning. Remind them of how much you love them and how you want to call out of them love. 
Fill them with your Holy Spirit and lead them into your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Y'all have a great time in Hope for Kids. And remember, God is love. I think they get it. Right. They're all so bashful. Yes. So, good, good. Well, will you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for God's Word this morning? God, our loving Father, we come before you as we open your Word. We pray that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to us by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit through your Holy Word. And Lord, as we come before you in this way, we lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts that we might be more free to encounter you here through your word today. We acknowledge before you that we are sinners in need of your grace. And we thank you that you have poured out your love upon us by the work of your son, Jesus Christ, that we might have forgiveness, grace, and life eternal in him. Lord, we lift to you this morning those whom we know and love who are sick or facing uncertain diagnoses. We pray your healing mercies over them. We lift to you those who grieve. and We pray that you would comfort them. I pray especially uh, for my sister Sherry and her daughter Ashley and her son James and their extended families um, in their loss of my brother-in-law Lou and I just pray that you would be present in their hearts, ministering your comfort and grace to them. And Lord, we lift to you um, our country at every level of government elected and appointed. We pray for wisdom and discernment and the decisions that are before our government workers. We lift to you those who are in uniform. We pray your protection over them. We lift especially to you, those who are serving our country and are in harm's way. We pray that you would bring them home safely. Lord, we lift to you those who've returned home from their service changed as a result of the sacrifices they've made. And we pray your healing over them, mind, body, and soul. Use us, your church, to minister that healing and grace to them and to many, many others. And we pray for your church here at Hope and around the world. As your word goes forth from the mouths of your people, may it not return to you empty. We lift to you those churches to whom we are connected through our missions giving and our denomination. We lift to you uh, what you're doing through Paul and Elizabeth Branch in Guatemala, uh, what you're doing through John and Diane Davis in Laredo, Texas, um, what you are doing in our sister church in Kamahuani, Cuba, what you are doing through Pastor Patchy and his wife Marilyn in Havana, Cuba, what you are doing in Beirut, Lebanon through Robbie and Joyce Hamd and others who are working there uh, in our denomination. And we lift up Monica and Benjamin Bailey in the Middle East and we just pray your blessing over your work in their midst. And we lift up the churches that you are planting uh, here in Texas in New Braunfels, in Austin, in Dallas, and we just pray your blessing over those young works. Be with us now as we open your word, open our hearts, speak to us, grow us more and more into the men and women of God that you've created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Well, we are in a series of messages this summer that's been working through the last few short little letters, mostly short little letters, at the back of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation. So these are the books of 1 John, the creatively named 2 John, and the even more creatively named 3 John, uh, as well as the book of Jude. And we've been looking at these uh, epistles, these letters, um, throughout the summer and different parts. We've been in 1 John for a while now, and I told you earlier in this series that as we get towards the end of 1 John, it's going to get a little weird. Um, 
And, and here's what's going on. John is writing in a, in a context where he's already been the pastor of the people to whom he is writing, or most of them anyway, and they had a common vocabulary. They had a common understanding, and John is going to reach back to some of those common ideas and just say them and not define them for us because his original audience would have understood the more robust context of his many years in ministry with them. They would have understood what he meant. And so these words were not meaningless to the people who first heard them. They were very well understood. We are left in a situation where we don't know all of the conversation that preceded some parts of this letter. And so we read them and we go, what? What, what does that mean, right? And here's what I want to just say up front. If you're ever listening to someone preach and they tell you exactly what these words mean, walk away. <laughs> just keep going, right? There's some things we don't know, and it's okay. We do know that when these words were originally penned, written, and transferred, read out loud to that congregation, most of the people there knew John, they knew what he meant, and they would have been able to explain to anyone who was there what exactly he was talking about. We do not have that privilege. This isn't major stuff. There's just a couple things here at the end of the book that are like, what? what, what? what? Thanks, John. Thanks a lot. You know, as the, as the one who stands up here, I just, oh, oy vey, dude. Really? You had to just lay that out there and not explain? So this, is, this passage has some of that. So when we're done, uh, when I'm done, I'm going to ask for questions from you. So as, you, as we're reading, if you have something that makes no sense whatsoever, circle it, underline it, write out a question. Feel free to ask when we're done. And if I haven't fully explained it by then, then, we'll, then I'll, I'll probably just tell you I don't know. But please feel free to ask the question. That will help this process. All right? So to that end, we are in... 1 John chapter 5, these are the last two, we're going to do the first half of chapter 5 today and the last half of chapter 5 next week and then we'll be done with 1 John. Um, but also to remind you, John writes in a very cyclical style. He circles back and around and it's actually very beautiful, um, but sometimes it can be difficult to uh, divide out in a logical outline, which is how I present typically, and so it's, it's a little bit frustrating in that sense. However, it is a beautiful style, and it's also helpful if you think about it. The original audience of John's words would have been listening to them in a, a church setting, in the context of their worship service, and so this letter would have been read aloud, and the repetition is, will help retention, right? Like he repeats these themes, he uses a lot of contrast metaphors, light and dark, good and evil. Um, and then he just cycles back and forth through all these ideas. And he's really, he's going somewhere. There's, there's things he wants, that God wants us to know through this. Um, but I just want to set that up. He's writing to small groups of Christians who are meeting in their homes because it's illegal in, the, in their time period to do what we're doing this morning. They did not have this freedom. They had to meet in secret and small groups in people's homes, and then the, the letter would have been read in that context. And so you can, you can kind of see the value of his writing style in that historical context. It gave the listeners a chance to kind of repeat their thoughts through the same kinds of themes. And so here we go. First John chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God 
overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the word, I'm sorry, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son, whoever believes in the Son of God, has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. All right. I mean, if any of you know what he means by the water and the blood, just bring it. Like, I'm all ears. I, I, I will, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, so, sometimes when we're engaging in God's word, it's, it's important to back up and take the 10,000 foot view, like we're looking over a large uh, area of themes and ideas, and we're not standing in the, in the wheat field, we're 10,000 feet above it. You can't see the heads, the grains, you, you're not looking at the details, you're backed up, you're looking at the beauty of the bigger picture. And I think this is a, a good way to, to look at this passage, just back up. And it's really, in many ways, it's what John is doing uh, throughout his letter. He's saying, back up, take a big, God is love. He says this twice in chapter four. God is love. This is big picture stuff. And then he says, like, how do you know uh, who is, who is of, who's been born of God? Well, they love God and they love one another. Love, 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 love. This is the big picture. And then as he's talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how do you know who he is, he, taught, he uses this language of water and blood and the spirit. And so there are really there are two questions that we're trying to listen to John speak to this morning. And, and the first is very simply, how do we understand our salvation? How do we understand what, what happens to our messy hearts and souls when the love of God breaks in to who we are? What is that all about? And then the other question is, how, do we, how are we supposed to understand who our Savior is? How, what, what are we supposed to know? What are we supposed to take away how do we understand who Jesus is? So let's just go first. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 together. And we're going to ask the question, um, how does this speak to our understanding of our salvation? Of what happens to our messy hearts when the love of God breaks in? So to understand our own salvation, we must first understand exactly what John is saying in verse 1. Of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, Christ is the Greek word that means anointed. So everyone who believes that Jesus is the anointed one has been born of God. I, I want to emphasize this, all right? If I'm understanding this correctly, it's saying that our belief is the product of a birth, right? So Think about it by the metaphor that, that Jesus and John both use here. 
It's the metaphor of birth. When can a baby breathe? Before or after birth? Only after. One must be born to be able to then breathe. And so John is saying, if I'm understanding him correctly, everyone who believes, that is, who has this breath of faith, that Jesus is the Christ, has already been born of God. He's been reborn, um, or born again, if you will. Um, (laughs) That's just too much cuteness. So, you are, this is your first point of understanding of your faith, you are born again. You have been reborn spiritually. This is a spiritual rebirth. I'm going to quote a lot of scriptures here. If you, if you have the bulletin, most of them are printed on the back underneath my outline. If you want to jump over there and follow along. I did not ask my, uh, my uh, projectionist to try to keep up with all these references. So Jack, just take a deep breath and hang with us. And, um, so the first verse I want you to look at is from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 5. And Jesus is talking to a Jewish leader named Nicodemus, and they're having a conversation about spiritual rebirth, about being born again. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What, what John means there by born of water, I think, there's two different views. One is that they're, bo- that they're baptized. I don't think that's what he actually means. I think he means it's the water of actual birth. Like we even use that term. Her water broke. She's about to give birth. That's a common natural thing. I think that's what he means, that Jesus was born as a human being, and, and, and he's saying you have to be born born as a human, and you have to be reborn spiritually. And he goes, you can follow that whole conversation in John chapter 3, but here's what's most interesting about it. Jesus uses this metaphor of birth or rebirth or spiritual birth. He sets it up against human birth. And I asked this question, I think last week maybe, how much choice did you have in your physical birth? Zip, nada, zero. And I think Jesus uses this metaphor for a reason. And if we're to ask the question why, I think the first answer is the humility of knowing that my standing at the foot of the cross is not based on anything I did. It's not based on me outsmarting someone else or outperforming someone else. It's certainly not based on me outbehaving someone else. Um, And so how do we come to this thing of salvation it's by being born again and it's okay if God is saying it I, tr- I, I assure you you can trust these words it doesn't have to be your choice if God is saying this the way he's saying it he's saying it for a reason and there's a humility in knowing that my salvation w- did not come by my initiative and we'll talk about that more in just a moment um, so You are born again at God's initiative. Listen to this verse from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not out of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. According to Jesus... In John chapter 1, whose initiative is it? You are born of God, of his initiative. And so I think, I think this is how God wants us to understand the question of our own salvation. He looks down from heaven, and I don't know why. I don't know why he pointed to my soul and said, that one's going to be mine, and then he regenerated me, he redeemed me, he shed his blood for me, and my eternal life was changed. All I can tell you is I'm grateful to be here. I'm just 
thankful to be, even if I end up hanging off the cliff of heaven by a pinky fingernail, I'm good. That's probably where I belong. But that's, that's okay, right? I'm covered by the blood of Christ, by something I didn't earn, I don't deserve. It wasn't from my initiative. It was the heart of God flowing out through humankind, and it's always redemptive. It's always the initiative is his love, his will, his mind, his heart. So you are born again at God's initiative by God's grace. That's it. The only thing we add to the equation of our salvation is our sin. That's some famous guy said that one time. I like it. So I'll say it again. Next time I say it, I'll just say, as I often say. Right? That's how you steal a thought. Um, but uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we read this passage earlier. And if you read, if you sit in this passage and read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and you think about it in these terms, at whose initiative does all of this occur? It is clearly the heart and will of God at work. Ephesians chapter 2, just verse 8, for the sake of the time we have. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Do I need to be more clear? I don't think so. I, I think if we look at God's word collectively, the clarity comes and, and the understanding follows. So to understand our salvation, we start with this idea that we are born again spiritually at God's initiative by God's grace, and then we are given faith. The gift of faith comes from God to us, and this is where everything starts to happen. So I can explain to you the only this, that at one point in my life, um, I was a prideful, stubborn, rebellious teenager. And then the grace of God broke into my heart. The, the, the conduit, the pipe of faith was stuck into my heart by God. I was regenerated. I was spiritually born again. I came to understand that God had done something for me that I could never do for myself. And in that response, I became a, a stubborn, rebellious, uh, self-interested Christian. I was redeemed by the blood of another. The rest of my story is God trying to cut out that selfishness, that self-interest, that stubbornness out of my heart. It's been a fight. I, 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 I'm, I'll fight if you come at me. Don't worry. Um, and so that's how it works. God broke into my heart, changed the very core of who I was, and he's been working his way from the inside out ever since. And it's not always a fight. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes I have good days, and, and I listen, and I obey, and I respond, and I love him, and I love others. Other days, I revert. You know the story. You know the dance. You've been there. You've done this. Um, but in terms of understanding our salvation, first we are born again. Then we are given faith. The object of that faith matters. If you just have faith in the universe, I'm sorry. Like, that's nice, but that's not what we're talking about here. When God plugs that conduit into your heart, it connects you to Jesus Christ himself, to the, to the second person of what we call the Trinity. So to God himself, you are connected forever. And no one can take that. If God stuck it in there, who's going to beat him up and pull it out? No one. It's not possible. So... There it is. You've been given the gift of faith the, that connects you to the object of your faith, Jesus Christ, the one who overcame the world. This is one of the metaphors that John uses is between the world and the kingdom of God, that there's this battle going on between good and evil, and we are caught right in the middle of it. And John says the one 
who overcame the world, that is Jesus the Christ. That's who he is. That's who you are connected to by faith. And so in the, you're, you're given faith in the one who overcame the world, and you are to claim his victory over sin, over death, for yourself. That's how it works. God did that for you. He went to the cross for you so that you can have freedom and forgiveness and grace and life eternal. There is great peace in knowing that I didn't have anything to do with my salvation, with the initiative of my salvation, because if it truly came at God's initiative, if my rebirth was by the will of the Father and not mine, no one can undo that. No one can take it away. And John does talk about elsewhere in, in his letters that you know, there are some people that look like they were born again and then they fall away. And he says, he literally says, they were never in. Right, which leads us to the old, you probably don't want the old joke. Do you want the old joke? All right, so a, a Baptist, a Lutheran, and a Presbyterian pastor are standing by the train tracks looking at a, at a, at a, at a body that's laying there after the train went by. And the Baptist declares, clearly this man chose to jump from the train. And the Lutheran says, no, no, clearly it was God's will that this man was to fall from the train. And the Calvinist, the Presbyterian, says, clearly this man was never truly on the train in the first place. <laughs> All right, there's the bad old theolo theology joke. Um, but John actually does say that in his letters. He says that... that that person was never truly born again. They just looked like they were, and that's possible. But here's what I don't think. I don't think that God wants you to walk around in, in fear of whether or not it's you. You're covered. You're forgiven. You're loved. And if that resonates with you at all, you're good. You're getting it. You're in. And so this is who we are what God wants us to believe about our salvation, that we're born again, we are given the gift of faith, and we are called to love. It only makes sense that if he loved us, that what he is calling out of us is love. God is love. You were listening. How encouraging. God is love, and what he wants to call out of this broken, self-interested, rebellious heart is love. That's what he wants. And so here we are, called to love, to obey God only out of love. Here's what the Bible does not say. It does not say, love your fellow man, or I shall smite thee. I'm not pointing at anyone in particular, that was finger that goes far over your heads yeah <laughs> yeah how about that yeah there you go that works that works much better sorry for that it was a misfire um i'm not a very pointy preacher to begin with so every once in a while i get going you know but here we are um god does not say if you don't do this right i'm going to get you he says i love you and when you blow it, I still love you. And what I want is for you to come back to my heart, to return to me, to repent, to, to cough it all up and start over. I want you to love. And John even clarifies that the commandment that he's talking about in this passage is the commandment to love God and to love one another. That's the commandment. Love, 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 love. It's love on both sides and all around and on the inside. So this is your salvation, that you are born again, that you are given faith, that you are called to love and to obey God only out of love, which means that you will learn to love those who love God and those that God loves. It's love, 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 love. There's a lot of love here. That's a good thing. And so there it is, this understanding of our salvation. It starts with God's 
initiative love for us, we are redeemed and called to express that love to others. Okay. And I don't know about you, but it is actually helpful to me to cycle back through that understanding every week that, that I, need to, I need to be called back to the center of this thing that is our faith that is basically simply God's love. I need to hear that again and again and again. So, that is our understanding of our salvation. If you have any questions, write them down. Then, there is the, our understanding of our Savior. Who is this object of our faith? We've been given this conduit to him. Who is he? How are we to understand him? And how are we to relate to him? So I'm going to start by stealing some language out of the Gospel of John and just saying he is the water of life. There are three things that John refers to in this, par- in this portion of, of chapter 5. He was water, blood, and spirit. Those are the three things we're going to look at. We're going to try to make sure we understand what on earth John was trying to say. Jesus is the water of life. He actually says this to a woman in the Gospel of John. Um, I think when John, so (laughs) what does John mean? Let's go to verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. And unfortunately, John had probably spent many sermons in his time in, in the churches that he's writing to talking about Jesus coming by water and blood. And they would have had some common understanding of exactly what he meant. But here's what I, here's, there's many possibilities. And then there's what I think is, is probably what's going on. And so let's talk about this one who came by water, the one who is the water of life. I think sometimes when John uses the term of water, let's look at John chapter 3, verse 5 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I think what he's saying there is, is you have to be born uh, uh, as a human. Like, that's, that's who the grace of God is for. And then you have to be born of the Spirit. You have to be reborn spiritually. That's our second birth, if you will. And he has a full conversation with Nicodemus about that. And I think that's part of what John has in view here, is that Jesus was born fully human. He was born of water the same way we were. This is important, that he was not pretending to be human. He didn't just look human. He actually became fully human. This is really, really important because then his sacrifice can be applied to humans. He, at the same time, was fully God, which allows him to apply his sacrifice infinitely to as many humans as he chooses. So, he is the water of life, born fully human, of water, a human birth, probably, to fully cleanse us spiritually. That's why he came. He is the water of life. And if you look at the Old Testament, let's look at Numbers 8, 7. Uh, This is the, the purification of the priest. So before you could go into the temple as a priest... This is what had to happen. Thus you shall do to them, that's the priest, to cleanse them, sprinkle the water of purification on them. The only reason I mention this is because this is an Old Testament concept. John, the author of this letter, was Jewish, and he understood that water equals purification. So there's multiple layers of meaning in what John is saying, and I think think the best way to take it is just to take kind of most of the possibilities and just let them all be under that umbrella in some way. It's, it's a general 10,000-foot view, not each grain of, of wheat that we're trying to define. I think John is just saying water. He means a couple of things, a lot of things. We don't know exactly what he meant, but all these possibilities are in view, and I think John understood that when he spoke as a Jewish author and he saw, talks about water, the idea of purification is, is well within view of what he's saying. So, Jesus is the water of life, born fully human, to fully cleanse us spiritually. And he is the blood of our atonement. 
That's who Jesus is. He is the one whose blood will atone for our sins. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So blood represents life. In Jesus' case, his blood represents your eternal life. Okay? So he's the water of life. He is the blood of our atonement, the fullness of God in human flesh. That is, God himself became human so that he could infinitely atone for our sin. Matthew uh, 26, 27 through 28, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus and John clearly had an understanding that the blood of Christ was meant for our atonement, that he was the fullness of God in human flesh come to fully forgive our sins. So this is where the the infinity of him being God comes into the salvation equation. He's fully human, which means he can atone for your sin and my sin. He's fully God, which means he can atone for all of the sins of his people. He has an infinite capacity to forgive. All right, I'm going to keep moving. Um, You have the water of life, the blood of our atonement, and he is the one of whom the Spirit of God testifies. So these are the three things that John says tell us how we understand our Savior. This is the Spirit, Matthew 3, 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. (laughs) Somebody want to help her? Okay. (laughs) Um, Okay. The Spirit of God, this is important, right? You have Jesus in the flesh being baptized by John the Baptist, different John, by the way. Um, And the Spirit of God descends from heaven. The witnesses there said it was like a dove that descended and landed on him. This spiritual thing fluttered down. And then God the Father spoke those words, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so, important to see the three aspects of the one true God at work in one setting. Really powerful. But the, the Spirit is that which testifies to the Son. Um, the Spirit lives in our hearts. This is the deposit of, of the work of Christ when He redeems us, when He atones for our sin. He leaves behind the presence of God in the form of the Holy Spirit in each of our hearts. John talks about this extensively in this letter. You can read it for yourself. Just go back and read the first four chapters. The Spirit is very active in John's thoughts and in his writings and his ministry. And John reminds us that God puts the Spirit in our hearts. This is really important. I don't know about you. My heart can be full of all kinds of bad things. Fear, Doubt, apathy, disbelief, um, anger, right? There's all kinds of things in there that can cloud the clarity of the presence of God. And Jesus says, I am putting the strongest being in the universe directly into your heart. You have God himself alive within you if you are redeemed by the blood of Christ. This is hugely comforting and hugely encouraging that even in the clouds of everything I put between myself and God, behind it all, over an, an enemy, behind enemy lines, in the middle of my heart, lives the Spirit of God himself. He's alive and he will testify in my own life to the value of my creator, to the personhood of my creator, to the impact of my creator, my redeemer, the lover of my soul. I can resonate from the inside 
with God himself and who he is and what it all means. And you can too. And John says multiple times throughout this letter, this is where the rubber meets the road. You, you have the spirit of God within you. Um, All of us do. We have been redeemed. We are loved. And God is alive within our hearts. He lives in our hearts this one of whom the Spirit testifies, the Spirit lives in our hearts to confirm that we have eternal life. And in fact, the very next verse from the ones we're looking at today, John will go into, I write these things to you who believe in in the Jesus as the Christ that you may know that you have eternal life. There's one thing God doesn't want you, there's lots of things God doesn't want you to doubt. But among them, paramount is that you are redeemed you are saved you are forgiven he wants you to know that his love has redefined who you are and that no one can take it away all right i probably uh didn't cover everything that's in there so at this point i'm going to invite questions from anyone that wants to um <laughs> it would be great if the questions were related to the text that we're studying. But yes, Ralph. Great question. So the so probably so w- which aspect of love does God mean when He says? love and the the easiest answer is all of them and and I'll, i'll try to i'll try to back up okay in the old testament there are really there are two kinds of love there's the love that we have for one another like a father for a child or a spouse for a spouse or whatever um and then there's the love that god has for us that's a specific word in Hebrew. And it is used a few times uh, in later books of the Old Testament to talk about love between people. Um, but the overwhelming, like 95% of the usage of that word is God's love for us. And it's, it's often, like in the old King James, it was always translated loving kindness. His loving kindness toward us. Um, And so John is talking about both of those aspects of love, the love of God for us and the love we are to have for for God and for one another. So there's this aspect of, and and if you want to look in the New Testament, there's three uses of love. There's unconditional love, there's brotherly love, and there's erotic love. and, and what he has in mind is the unconditional love and the brotherly love, almost undoubtedly. Um, and Ralph, if it would help you, I can go back into this passage with my Greek and look up exactly which word he used uh, in each case. But I, my guess is um, it's, it's the unconditional love of God that he's talking about, that he wants us to reflect. And then love for our fellow man would flow out of that. Okay? Good question, because it's a rich word. Other questions? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So the, this may be the best question that will ever be asked at Hope Church. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat it for those who are on Zoom. Is it possible in our call to love our fellow man to say to another human being, I love you, I love you with the love of God, but please go away. Um, <laughs> so uh, let, me, let me try to frame that this way. I I had a mentor early, early, early when I was still in seminary. And he was, he was, 
weirdly, one of my professors for one semester, but he wasn't supposed to be. It's a long story, anyway. Um, really, really insightful pastor. And, and uh, he would always talk about what's helpful and what's healthy. And so in, in our human relationships, we can love someone who is unhelpful and unhealthy. And the best way to love them is to not jump into their unhealthy, unhelpful system, to stay separate from that and, and set healthy boundaries and say to that person, look, I love you. I'm just not going to play that unhealthy game. I'm not going to do it. Um, I'm going to do what's healthy, and I'm going to do what's helpful, and I'm going to love you, but not the way you're trying to drag me into your dysfunction. Okay? And I don't know if that fully answers your question, but maybe the short answer is yes, you can, you can say that in love. Like, I love you. I do. I don't feel a lot of love for you because you're, you're acting in ways that are really unhealthy and unhelpful. I'm not going to play that game, but I am going to love God and I'm going to love you, but I'm going to set clear, healthy boundaries. And this mentor of mine would always say, what's what's the healthy thing to do, right? What's healthy? And I think that's a great ethical question. It's not universally effective, right? It's not always going to give you the right answer, but it's pretty, pretty good. So did that help? Okay, good, good. Other questions? No one wants to follow that question. Margot. Okay. So context around the in the Gospel of John or the letter of John? Okay. So so in the in the in this letter, and we, we believe this is the same author. And if you just look thematically at what the Gospel of John cycles through and what this letter of first John cycles through, they're exactly the same. Light, dark, good, evil love, hate, the world, the kingdom, they're all, the contrasts are all the same. So it is, it is most likely that the John who wrote this letter is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. Um, they didn't have copyrights back then, so it's hard to, you know, trace that any other way other than just looking at the words. Um, so in John's letter, he has all these contrasts that were just mentioned, and he is, he is drawing on the years that he had with these Christians that he's writing to now from a distance of the years that he had together with them. And so sometimes he says things like the water and the blood and just keeps going. And they would have known exactly what he meant by that because they had heard him talk about it multiple times or people in that church had heard him talk about it. In the Gospel of John, um, John actually makes, in chapter 1, the, the greatest existential claim that's ever been put in writing, which is that Jesus is the eternal logos, which is a Greek term that means the, uh, the essence of all things, that Jesus is the starting point of all things. He is the eternal word that gives life and meaning and love to the universe. And so um, that is really important to understand when you read the letter of John, what the, how the gospel of John, that, that is more spelled out in many places, how that informs what John's saying in his letter. So when he talks about water and blood, go back to the gospel of John, read about those themes there, and you'll better understand what he has, what he probably has in view in his letter. Did that help? Okay. Bill. <laughs> yes.
Mm-hmm. So, okay, can I just sort of speak for John for a second? So John would say, so the question is, you know, how do we, how do we reconcile those times in our life where it feels like we've fallen off the train uh, and it makes us wonder, was I ever really on the train or what, what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. So let me, let me, before I get to John speaking to that question, I'll just say this. If you're wrestling with that question, that is a really strong sign that you're on the train, that that, that value matters to your heart and soul is a great indication that that switch has been turned on in your heart and you care about that. And, and so John would say things like, um, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's really strong language, right? And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is in chapter 3 of 1 John. Um, What John is trying to say is, if you're on the train, no one can take you off. If you're not on the train, (laughs) you don't have the same well in which to draw from or from which to draw that people who are on the train have. And so the the fruit of your life is going to be very different. And, And you can see the difference over time. But that doesn't mean that those of us on the train won't act like people on the ground every once in a while. And so we have this battle raging. But honestly, if, if think about it this way. If the blood of Christ was applied to your soul by God at his initiative, there is nothing that can take that away from you. And I'll, I'll prove it to you. All right? Um, this is from the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, verses 37 through the end. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of those things will threaten. They will rage. They will show up at the worst possible time. But none of them can separate you from the love of God. I can get to places in my own life and in my own heart where I feel very distant. It has no bearing on where God is in relation to me. He's got me. He loves me. He's redeemed me. And no one, no thing can take that away. Any other questions? Yes, sir. So the question is, what, what historical context led to John being exiled rather than executed? And we don't know. We, the Bible doesn't speak to why John was exiled. Um, but you, you, can sort of, you can sort of like think about it. So all the other original disciples, apostles, had by this point John wrote his gospel and these letters had all been executed for their faith. And Christianity was exploding. Um, No one had ever heard the concept that God loves you, that God is love, that love is the compelling force behind the person of God. No one had ever heard, well, the Jewish people had heard this, right? That's a little bit of an overstatement. But no one else in the Greco-Roman world had ever, this concept was mind-blowing. And so as Christianity began to spread and that message of love began to break into human hearts, 
the, the church, the amount of Christians in the Roman world was just exploding. And this is over a 50-year period, right? And well, they tried killing the other 11 apostles that were still on earth, and that didn't work. So maybe, maybe they looked at John and they're like, let's not make another martyr. This is not working. Let's just, let's just send him away to this little bitty island, and maybe he'll just disappear into irrelevance. Well, from there, he probably wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Thank you, Caesar, for giving us those extra years of John's life that were actually predicted by Jesus that he would live to a ripe old age. And, and so um, I guess the best answer, John, is that Jesus left John on earth for all those years to complete his will. Because of his faith, yes. Because of his atheism would have been the charge. Um, but some, some of the Caesars did realize, like, some of them were just bloodthirsty, crazy people. Others of them realized, you know, if we keep killing our taxpayers, that's going to decrease revenue, I think. Um, let's let him live and see what happens, because it couldn't be worse than what we've done to the other 11, because it just makes this thing grow. Um, so it's all speculation, though, except for the Jesus part. Yes, sir. Yes, yes. Justice and love are fully compatible in the person of God. Justice on this earth is imperfect. Love on this earth is imperfect. But in the, in the person of God, in the Trinity, love and justice are fully compatible. You, you, in fact, you cannot have one without the other. If God is not fully righteous, fully holy, um, then he cannot be, and fully just, then he cannot be fully loving. He's not, he's not the God that the Bible says he is. He has to be all of those things. All right. I feel like we should probably wrap it up. We will pause for questions next week when it gets even weirder. All right. Um, and you can read ahead if you want to, and you can think about what John possibly might mean uh, in the last concluding verses of, of chapter 5. But um, let's, let's just pause for a prayer, and then we're going to have the worship team come up, and then we'll have communion, um, and we'll go from there. God, our loving Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sometimes uh, the unclarity of your word uh, draws us into deeper thoughts and deeper connection with you and into greater worship. And so we thank you that, that your word works every time in every way in every heart. So we just come before you and pray that you would minister to us a deeper sense of the truth that you are love, that you are our Savior, that our salvation comes because you loved us, and that we will have a growing understanding of, of who you are and how much you love us. And Lord, at the same time, fill us with your Spirit that we might express your love to those around us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.